Welcome to Stanford Innovation Lab. I'm Tina Seelig, Professor of the Practice in the Department of Management Science and Engineering at Stanford University. This podcast is designed to give you a taste of the topics we explore in our classes on innovation and entrepreneurship. Today's guest is Chiwa Chen, co-founder and managing partner of Goodwater Capital. I met Chiwa when he was a student at Stanford nearly 20 years ago. After graduating, Chiwa worked at several startups and then entered the world of venture capital, working first at Excel Partners and then at Kleiner Perkins. He's now running his own firm, Goodwater Capital, which he describes as a next-generation VC firm. In this episode of Stanford Innovation Lab, Chiwa shares his experiences and thoughts on the world of venture capital and how the industry is ripe for transformation. He discusses venture capital from the startup founder's perspective and gives insights on when companies should raise money and when they shouldn't. His ideas about the evolving world of VC are fascinating and really important for anyone who's considering raising VC funding. So um, I met you 17 years ago when I first started working at Stanford. And of course, at that point, I knew you were going to be amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Can you share with everybody what you've done in the last 17 years? Yeah, so I was a 1999 Stanford grad uh, and a Mayfield Fellow. I stayed one year to do my master's degree with uh, Tom and Tina in the Mayfield Fellows program. Uh, And then I went straight headlong into the startup world. Uh, I joined a startup in 2000 that was called eCoverage. It was building online financial services products. Um, and it was a high flyer of its day that promptly hit the wall after the 2000 bubble crashed. Well, of course. And I was one of the last three people in the building selling the filing cabinets and the chairs and the uh, old computers for scraps. Um, went to Hawaii for a few weeks. Uh, that year was a really, really notable year. There were four of us who lived in a house in uh, Redwood City after graduate school, and that year we lost five jobs. Oh my goodness! Four of us. Oh my goodness! <laughs> so it gives you a sense of how big of a meltdown there was in Silicon Valley at that time. Uh, went on to uh, join another company that was led by the CEO of eCoverage. Uh, called Core Metrics. I started in the uh, business development group there, eventually ran marketing, eventually ran inside sales, took over as CFO of the company, and then became co-president of the company over the course of uh, three and a half, four four years when I was there. Uh, Eventually that business, after I was left, was sold to IBM uh, for a pretty good outcome for a 99 software company, and that was, it was a web analytics business. Um, And uh, when I was at, uh, the core metrics, I had two great board members from Excel Partners, uh, Peter Fenton and Arthur Patterson, and through them became introduced to venture capital. And how I got started was actually as a cleanup guy. In uh, the early 2000s, there were a lot of businesses that had been dramatically overfunded and just had a lot of issues getting to profitability. And so nights and weekends, I would work with Peter, Arthur, the founders of those companies, to try to figure out how to turn those businesses around, get them profitable, uh, cut costs, grow revenue, et cetera. And we did that uh, for four or five different businesses with varying degrees of success, and then ended up on the venture side. So I uh, spent a total of five years at uh, Axel Partners, and then seven years at Kleiner Perkins at Excel. I was fortunate to be involved in investments, uh, the Series A investment in Facebook, uh, when it was just six employees. Um, Trulia, which became a very successful real estate search platform. 
um, a variety of different uh, admonization platforms. And then in 2007 was recruited to join Kleiner Perkins as Kleiner was starting, or rather restarting its uh, consumer tech group. And from there, uh, ended up doing 22 investments all in consumer technology, from seed of $150,000 all the way to $150 million growth equity uh, checks into later stage consumer companies. So for many people, the world of VC is a black box. You know, you sort of uh, think, well, we need to raise some money, and it's just impossible to even think what's going on behind those closed doors in terms of decision-making. Can you give us some insights on what's really going on behind those doors? Yeah, you know, venture capital seems like a really complicated business, but it's not nearly as complicated as it would look from the outside. Uh, It's quite simple, really. You have to identify macro trends that are occurring in terms of technology. You have to find great companies that are getting started in the midst of those macro trends. You have to invest in the companies that are going to be winners. And then you have to serve the entrepreneur and help build those companies over the course of five, seven, ten, sometimes more years. So from the outside, it makes it look more complicated because most companies are not funded. The running understanding is that it's one out of ten that's really a home run. Yeah. And that's absolutely right. The business of venture capital uh, is heavily concentrated in the winners because one winner can make up for dozens of companies that end up not being successful. For every company like a Facebook, like a Google, like an Uber, there were literally thousands, maybe tens of thousands of companies funded and created during that period of time that ended up generating the handful of winners. Uh, But that's what's awesome about venture is the chance to really deeply understand markets and identify who those companies are and be a part of them. So I know that there's actually some controversy about whether it really makes sense to even get VC money. Here we are in the Valley where it is just assumed you start a company, you get venture capital investments. But I also know that there are some really successful firms that don't take or have never taken VC money. I'm going to play a short clip by uh, David Heinemeyer, who was a serial entrepreneur, talking about how venture capital is a time bomb. In this industry, venture capital is absolutely a time bomb, and it's probably the most harmful thing you can do to a new business, is to accept venture capital upfront. And I'll tell you why. At first, it sounds like it's a really good idea. Like, if I didn't take venture capital, well, I wouldn't have any money, and we would only be us three people, and we would actually, like, how are we going to live? Good question. Now, if you take venture capital, you've got millions. You've probably got a runway of years. You don't have to worry about tomorrow. You can worry about three years from now. Because tomorrow doesn't really matter. You have five million in the bank. Who cares? Even better, it's not your money. (laughs) You get to spend other people's money for a sustained period of time. And um, the worst that can happen is that you waste five years of your life. That's pretty bad. Wasting five years of your life on something that doesn't work because the time bomb blew up. That's a lot worse than worrying about how you're going to make uh, rent next week, in my mind. Um, so the trade-off is sort of, are you going to have to pay now, where you actually have to prove that your idea is good enough, that it can be profitable, and that it can be self-sustainable? Um, or are you going to have to pay five years from now when you realize that um, the time bomb blew up? Now the venture capitalists own your company, and they've just pushed you out, and you have nothing to show for five years of effort. 
So to a degree, he's right. It depends on the type of company. But if you plan to build a profitable company from the very beginning and hire and grow in line with those profits, you don't need venture capital. The purpose of venture capital is to enable a company to pursue hyper growth, which requires a substantial amount of investment, also known as losses, over an extended period of time that needs to be funded by an outside capital source. So 99.5% of companies that are started should never even consider venture capital. If you want to start the local bagel shop, the local coffee shop, a consulting firm, a software development consulting firm, any of those things where you are going to get paid cash revenue by your customers consistently from the very beginning and generate profits, you don't need VC. Do you tell people this? Do you Absolutely. say, hey, listen. Absolutely. I had coffee this morning with somebody who showed me a business plan, and my advice to him is, I think this could be a great six or eight million dollar business. You could be, you know, cash flowing two to three million dollars a year in five to seven years. But don't take venture capital because there isn't a two billion dollar market opportunity here that you need to build a several hundred person organization to go pursue before you can be profitable. Aren't there other ways? to bring in large sums of money besides venture capital that are don't end up with the same time bomb that we just heard about? There, there's plenty of other forms of capital. There's small business loans. There's friends and family capital. There's uh, bank loans, uh, inventory financing, or, or receivables financing, I guess, in the case of a company that has, has revenue. But uh, venture capital is well-suited for a very, very specific example of a company one that is pursuing an extremely risky business plan with a very, very large upside opportunity if it works. Great. So this is super helpful to clarify this. Now, venture capital has been working the same way for a long time, and people are now starting to talk about disrupting venture capital. Is venture capital ripe for disruption and why? I think it absolutely is. So I think we have seen the evolution of venture capital from being a cottage industry of a small number of people practicing this form of high risk, high return investing and company building to it becoming an institutional asset class where there are very, very large platforms now. So the names you would read in the press, a, a Andreessen Horowitz, a Excel Partners, a Greylock, a Kleiner Perkins, a Sequoia Capital, they have all become uh, quite large uh, investors. They, they manage concurrent funds of over a billion dollars per fund cycle. They usually have five, six, seven, maybe $10 billion of assets under management. And they do everything. They'll do early stage investing. They'll do growth stage investing. They'll do US investing. They'll do China, Israel, India. They'll do life sciences. They'll do network infrastructure. They'll do enterprise software. Because that asset class has gotten institutionalized and those platforms have become mature, it's created an opportunity just as in any industry for the incumbents to be disrupted by startups, which is a key reason that in 2014, my partner Eric and I launched a new firm called Goodwater Capital, so, focused specifically on this. So, so great. So what is it that you are doing that's different? Because I've had a chance to chat with you about this and it blew my mind to see how you took the whole concept of VC and turned it on its head. Yeah. So we have a very, very simple thesis um, that comes in two parts. Uh, one is that if you look at all of the returns in venture capital history, 75 to 85% of those returns have been delivered by consumer technology companies. 
75 to 85% of all returns in the history of venture capital have been delivered by consumer technology companies. It doesn't matter if you look at the last five years of data, 10 years of data, 15 years of data. You look at M&A, you look at IPO, you look at US, you look at international, it's in that range. And if you think about it intuitively, it makes sense, right? A company like Google is worth, how much are they worth today? A company like Google is worth, you know, $500 billion. A company like Apple is worth $600 billion. A company like Facebook is worth $350 billion. There are not other comparable venture-funded companies that get to that scale in other industries. You'll have $5 billion networking equipment companies. You have $30 billion enterprise. But okay, so now you're talking about the industry, but how do you go about the process of picking those that you choose to invest? Right. So um, you look at the, the macro, which is that the vast majority of value is created there. And then the second uh, uh, theme is focus. So it's funny, we tell all of our startup entrepreneurs, focus, always focus. Make sure that you only do one thing and do it really, really, really well. And what we learned in venture, having spent uh, combined 23 years at huge investment platforms, is that these platforms don't focus. They do a little bit of everything. They might invest in a network infrastructure company. They might invest in a security software company. They might invest in an e-commerce company uh, in China. They might invest in the newest cancer drug. And it's the same five to seven to 10 people doing all of those different things. So the ability to build deep, deep expertise in a category at a firm level goes out the window. Now, that doesn't mean that each individual partner can't be an expert but you can't build deep expertise at the firm level because every partner is running off focused on their own category, their own network, their own investment thesis. And then there's a massive dilution of attention because let's say you bring in the next great cancer drug and I'm a managing member on that fund. So I have a fiduciary responsibility to be part of that investment decision. And you bring in this next great cancer drug and you try to reduce the, you know, the, the complexity of it down to the point where I, as a fiduciary of that fund, can understand it well enough to give you the authority to go write a 5 or 10 or $15 million check, right? Well, the last time I took a bio class was 10th grade. So I'm pretty unlikely to be a very sophisticated uh, partner to you in helping you think through the risks, the diligence, the returns profile, what's the business model, who are the potential acquirers, what could really go wrong in this company? Right? So you've expended a ton of effort to educate me. At the same time, I haven't added a whole lot of value. The inverse is also true. I bring in the next great consumer internet company that has a huge rapid, or has a rapidly scaling, soon-to-be huge audience, has absolutely no business model, has potentially a ton of media risk associated with it. Right? And your value add to me is going to be, well, you know, my teenage son or daughter said that they're using this in high school or I heard so-and-so, there's just not going to be the density of value add, right? So our thesis combining those two insights was one, a huge amount of value, the, the vast majority of value is being created in consumer tech, but none of the firms are really deeply focused on it. So we built a firm that's focused 100% on consumer tech. It's all that we do. So most firms, I understand, um, it's all about the people. They, when they hear pitches mm -hmm. from tons of companies that come in. They right. just have a parade of people coming in. In fact, that's also after they've read even more business plans or business models or pitches, and then they invite 
a large number to come in, they hear them, and they make a lot of their decisions based on the team. We hear about the team, the team, the team. How does that fit into your calculus? The team is absolutely critical. You cannot have a successful company without a successful team. So uh, that is that is absolutely central to any investment thesis. However, the way you go about deciding which companies you're going to invest in, you have to make sure that team is only one input. So I'll give you an example. At my previous firm, I try to meet four to five companies a day. That's 20 to 25 companies a week. That's over 1,000 companies a year, right? At Goodwater we'll probably try to meet between 100 and 200 companies in a year, the whole firm. And then we'll make six to eight investments out of that 100 or 200. And the reason is coming from that point of focus, the knowledge that we've built around the entire market and all the companies in the market and the performance of all those companies in the market predates any meeting we even have with a company. So, so can I ask you yeah. how you get that knowledge? What is What is your source of information? These are... These are startups. Yeah. These are new companies. Yeah. How do you get that information before you even meet with them? Yeah. So what Goodwater has built is Goodwater has built an entire platform which productizes the venture capital process. And specifically as it relates to consumer, a platform that enables us to understand the performance of every single consumer technology company in the world and focused in on the several thousand that really, really matter. We understand how they're performing. We understand how they're performing vis-a-vis -vis their competitors. We understand how fast that market is growing. We understand what the potential global differences are in the usage of those products. So we come from a deep place of understanding not only the products and the companies, but the underlying consumer behavior and consumer trends. So we spend a ton of our time researching that, which gives us the ability when we interact with a company either as a potential investment or once we've invested in a company as a company building partner to support them with the best understanding of any potential investment partner of the company that they're building. So this is really important. Um, I know that when entrepreneurs are deciding who to take money from, they do a lot of uh, assessment mm -hmm. about who's going to be the best member of their team, right? right. They're essentially welcoming you right. with open arms, you know, with your money, but also the input. And they end up having a lot of control, mm -hmm. you know, over the company. What do you tell these companies that you are going to offer them yeah. when you're trying to say, hey, listen, we should be the ones that invest in you? Absolutely. So we explain to them that we're 100% focused on consumer technology. We understand their category, their competitors, and their company better than anyone else out there. And perhaps more importantly, our whole firm is in full context on their business. When they walk into Goodwater, they won't talk to me who knows their business and then see seven other partners there who have no idea what they're doing and potentially don't even care what they're doing. Every single person at our firm deeply understands consumer trends, consumer technologies, consumer opportunities, and the companies that are pursuing them. So are you finding that most of the companies you're investing in are local to Silicon Valley or are they national? Are they global? Where are they? Yeah, that's, I think, been one of our biggest surprises since starting the firm two and a half years ago. Uh, we had a thesis that 
the global opportunity was going to be sizable just looking at the rate of smartphone growth, the rate of uh, middle class wealth creation, and the adoption of technology, but has been even greater than we've expected. So nearly half of our portfolio now is outside the Bay Area. Uh, 40% of the capital is actually in Asia. Uh, and um, it's just been quite shocking to see the consumer trends and how quickly they're emerging in other parts of the world um, in ways that in some in some ways parallel what's happening in America, but in a lot of other ways greatly exceed it. So interesting that so many of your investments are in other parts of the world. Are you finding that their venture capitalists are starting to sprout up in those regions? Definitely. I think the venture capital industry is becoming global as well in terms of the number of managers that are becoming experts in their regions. There's a very, very healthy venture capital market in China. There's a very healthy venture capital market in India. There's an emerging venture capital market in Korea, Indonesia, Taiwan, Latin America. And there's been a traditionally pretty healthy one in, in Europe as well. Um, and I think one of the, you know, you know me, I've been here for 21 years. I'm a Stanford and Bay Area advocate. But one of the most surprising things to me has been the fact that global execution, non-U.S. execution of some of these technology ideas has been better in a lot of cases than U.S. execution. Really? Silicon Valley may still have the innovation edge, but the execution edge in a lot of cases, I think might exist outside of the barrier, particularly in terms of capital efficiency. These companies are just very, very efficient. They get a lot done on very little money. Fascinating. So knowing this, what should an entrepreneur do? You know, if they know that Silicon Valley is still the seat of innovation, but that uh, implementation is going to be more cost-effective and quicker right. in other parts of the world. What do you do? Right. I think this is a this is a really good question, Tina. It's a very important insight, which is an entrepreneur in 2016 has to recognize that his or her markets are instantly global. The day that he or she launches a product, it is a global product. And the reason is because iOS and the Google Play Store have done all the hard work of getting you into hundreds of companies, like hundreds of countries with payments embedded, with a marketplace already there, with billions of devices and, and users, right? So you can no longer think about from Silicon Valley building a product that Americans will use. You have to think about building a product that initially Americans might use, but will very rapidly become a globally consumed product. And therefore, you need to plan your systems for that. You need to plan your marketing strategy for that. You need to plan for a regulatory approach to that. You have to think about how you structure your, uh, your costs to be appropriate for that. And one of the interesting trends we're seeing is that foreign uh, founded companies are actually exporting aggressively to the United States because it's a large market. So companies that are getting started in China, for example, are picking the U.S. as their target market instead of China because they have an advantage in terms of software development, uh, high-efficiency software development, while they can immediately export that to the U.S. in the same way we used to think about U.S. companies exporting digital products globally. So this is actually really complicated because it means if I'm going to start a company, I have to be thinking about a lot more things than just my product design. And um, who, what sort of things should I be considering when I bring people on to my founding team to set the stage for having a successful product? Yep. So as an entrepreneur, particularly in consumer, you um, 
can't afford to think about too much other than your product in the early stages. So ironically, you're dealing now in a much larger market with global competitors, but because of the global competition, your product has to be that much better. So you have to be sure you're building a great product. Now the team you build is going to be what's gonna enable you to get there, and that's where I think diversity is really, really important. If you can integrate a diverse leadership team, management framework, form a kind of way of thinking into the company early on, you're gonna have a huge advantage over people who don't have diversity on their teams because they can't really think globally. They can't really think about how different demographic or socioeconomic groups are gonna use that product, right? And I think that there is a inherent advantage to more diverse teams in the startup landscape that's instantly global. Do you think that the way that you're doing business is going to be the standard in the future? Do you think that the old model of venture capital will eventually die out? Uh, it might have worked, you know, for your father and grandfather or grandmother, but that in the future with a all the data that is available and with a global market that everybody will be thinking this way? Absolutely. I think that this will be the successful model in the future, but I think that many of the incumbent firms won't make the transition, as is true in nearly every market, right? The winner in PC desktop software, Microsoft, was not the winner in the internet, Google. The winner in the internet, Google, was not the winner in social networking, Facebook. The winner in social networking, Facebook, was not the winner in local marketplaces, Uber. And in the same way as the market uh, evolves in venture capital, I think a lot of these specialist firms that are focused on a particular area and potentially using data to have advantages will win in the future while some of the incumbent and existing firms will not make it. So paint a picture of the venture capital landscape 10, 15, 20 years from now. Is it going to be distributed around the world? Is it going to be tiny, small firms that, like yours, which is, you know, very, very focused on a very specific domain? I mean, what is, paint a picture of what you imagine the future is going to look like for the VC. Yeah. Uh, I think in the future, uh, and this is going to be potentially anathema to the thinking of venture for the last 25 years, I think in the future, brand is going to matter a whole lot less than it does today in venture capital. Uh, there's a belief right now that venture capital brand is everything because it drives deal flow. And that has worked for that past 25 or 35 years. That's why you see the big firms blogging a lot, tweeting a lot, getting on the cover of magazines, speaking at conferences, doing magazine, doing, doing TV shows, all that stuff, right? That actually doesn't add any value to the portfolio. It doesn't actually increase your ability to understand the problems that need to be solved in the market. It's all marketing and it's designed to drive deal flow. And that makes a whole lot of sense in a world where your goal is to have the widest door, widest funnel possible to get as many deals and then sort those deals at the bottom to see which one's successful, right? In a world of specialists, though, the whole thing flips on its head because if you have deep, deep knowledge of a particular category, you go out and find the great company, the great entrepreneur in the uh, fastest growing market, and you go and you partner with that person proactively, you don't wait for them to walk in your front door. So let me ask you a question. Do how many people reach out to you that you fund versus those that you reach out to them because you see they have a really interesting idea that they're pursuing? Uh, for us in the portfolio to date, 
it's probably 50-50, but it's evolving towards 80% people we reach out to and 20% pe people who reach out to us. And it started out 50-50 because we have an existing network and substantial deal flow uh, that's coming in based upon our existing network. But as our uh, ability to understand every market and the performance of companies within those markets improve, we have a higher fidelity signal to identify who those winners are and go proactively to talk to them. If you're going after companies that are all in a similar domain, do you have to worry about competition between them and in investing in firms that are actually going to try to eat each other's lunch? Yeah, we don't invest in competitive companies. So, for example, we'll invest in a uh, men's commerce company. Uh, men's fashion company and we'll invest in a women's cosmetics company or we'll invest in a uh, millennials investing platform and we'll invest in a millennials healthcare platform so those those two won't compete we have distinctive thesis areas and those don't overlap I have to assume that a lot of our listeners are aspiring entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So what advice would you give them in the current and evolving VC environment? I think the first relates to the point that you made earlier, which is be sure that your company is suitable for venture capital. Particularly the narrative over the last seven to eight years has been VC, VC, VC. But VC is not really appropriate for every single company that's out there. But the second is do your diligence. Get to know your potential investors extremely well. The length of the average investor-entrepreneur relationship lasts longer than the length of the average marriage <laughs> in America. So how many dates do you need to go on before you get married? How well do you need to know that person before you marry him or her? Did you want to meet their family? Did you want to understand their country of origin? Did you want to really understand their values before marrying them? Now, I'm not saying it's apples to apples comparison, but from a duration perspective, you can't, you, you can't divorce your venture investor. They're in your cap table forever. So make sure you check those references and make sure that you have extremely good alignment with them professionally and personally. This was so fascinating. Thank you so much for all of this information and insights. I know that it's really changed my thinking a lot. Thanks my pleasure. so much, Chua. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Stanford eCorner and the Stanford Technology Ventures Program, the Entrepreneurship Center at Stanford School of Engineering. Our Innovation Lab story producer is Deanna Batizadigan, and the technical producer and editor is Eli Shell. Our digital solutions manager is Sarah Khan, and our software developer is Davor Senkovich. Our designer is Daniel Stusi, and communications and marketing are led by Mike Pena and Monica Jort. You can find additional podcasts, videos, and articles at ecorner.stanford.edu, including our acclaimed Entrepreneurial Thought Leaders podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at eCorner.